Listeners, welcome back to the Business of Wellness podcast. I'm Jacqueline London, your host of the Business of Wellness, and I am thrilled to introduce today's guest. My guest today is Sarah Brooks. She is the co-founder of Goldilocks, which is a founder-first CPG consultancy and an advisor to disruptive consumer companies. She has... I, I, I actually first met Sarah when she was the CEO and founder of Covet PR, which is an agency that she founded in 2014. And it was honestly when I was working as an editor at Good Housekeeping, it was one of the leading agencies that I relied on for their unique, creative, and really customer-first, consumer-friendly products and brands that she would always bring me. I really feel like it's very rare to meet someone who is such a strong PR and marketing mind like Sarah. I heard, I actually had the privilege of hearing her on a different podcast, and I I sent her a message and was like, you've got to come on the Business of Wellness. So that is this conversation. I cannot wait to hear what you think. As always, you can please rate, review this podcast on Apple Podcasts if you're listening to it right now. However, I have a really exciting announcement to share with you guys. So coming up imminently, the Business of Wellness is moving over to Patreon. I'm going to share all of those details with you in the episode notes, but just wanted to give you guys a heads up. We are going to go to a new platform. We are building this community, and I just can't wait for you all to be a part of it. So of course, Patreon is a paid subscriber platform. I promise you, I am going to only charge you the amount that I think is absolutely fair for the work that goes into this product, this podcast product. And I would love it so much if you can join me. I will share all of the details as soon as those are ready. I'm going to share what I have right now in the episode notes right here. But I just wanted to give you guys a heads up that if suddenly you come back to the business of wellness and you're like, where is it? Where, where is, where's the podcasting? We are moving to Patreon. So heads up on that. And in the meantime, you can give me a follow at Jacqueline London RD on all social platforms and at Jacqueline London on TikTok. And I cannot wait to hear what you think of today's episode. Shoot me a DM. Let me know what you think by leaving a review on Apple. That's where we are, at least for now, at least for this episode is going to be on Apple. So um, I can't wait to hear from you. And your feedback is always something that I appreciate and value so much. So enjoy today's episode and I'll see you on the other side. Here. Oh my this God. is the pinnacle of guests. Sarah, Sarah Brooks. Welcome. Welcome to the business of wellness. You are the business of wellness. Oh so I don't know. I can't even welcome you here. You're here. Oh my you gosh. So, so flattering coming from you, who I think we've now known each other for 15 plus years in so it's many scary. different life forms. Oh, so true. But I, I am really like, I have to say I'm so, I just have to quell a little bit. I like to start with a little quell sometimes, especially when it's warranted. In this case, it really is because I really feel like, first of all, I just want to say that there were so few PR, like when, when you are an editor, <laughs> You are inundated with emails. And that, like, when I left Good House Me, I always told the story that I took with me. I, like, basically downloaded every email that was sitting in my Outlook because I was like, I don't know who's in here that I'm going to need. But yeah. I had thousands that were just unread because, like, you just can't. Like, you can't actually yeah. get to the amount, the volume in yeah. a day. Anyway, but what I remember about you is that anytime I saw your email or your name pop up, it was like, it's an instant reply. Because when you know someone and when you have a connection with someone and you know that they deliver and that they're amazing, efficient, but also lovely to work with as you are and as your whole team always was, Aww. there was no, there's no not answering that. You know what I mean? Like there's always going to be like, you're always getting back you're to that. So I've heard the horror stories from other editor friends. And I think probably from you at some point, like some of the pitches that went out, I was like, oh my gosh, like the whole 
the whole, when I tell my mom or like the average person, like what is PR? I'm like, you're just matchmaking. You're matchmaking, you're matchmaking your clients. So a brand with an editor who's like the mouthpiece. And it's like, you, I always told my team, like, if there's not a true reason to connect with someone, like don't connect with someone and right. so make sure your words, especially because your point you get, you would get hundreds and hundreds a day. So thank you. That, that means a lot. And it's something that I try to impart to my team when I had my agency. Oh my God. No, it's, it is completely true. I also just think that the other amazing thing that it really is a testament to you as the CEO and the founder of Covet was that I never, you always had amazing clients. Like you also always had amazing clients. So it was never a question of, yeah, I'm going to get back to you and say, like, there were occasionally, I'm sure, moments where I would get back to you and be like, ah, not really a fit. Or like, I don't think so because there's 2,000 grams of sugar. That rarely, yeah. that never happened. Well, your your, your but, feedback, I do remember those instances. And I think that's what also set you apart. Like you were writing for a publication, but you yourself as an editor had such like a poignant North Star of like what you really kept and like you really wanted to be true to. And so I do remember those occasions and I and I actually just like respected you more because lots of times I feel like when you're working for a publication, you kind of lose your own voice and, and oh you always God. are able to maintain that. Um, and I think, yeah, part of my um, an inadvertent sales technique, because it was never a sales technique, was like only take on brands that I'm super yeah. excited about and would eat myself and feed my kids. And like ultimately that, that like created this huge waiting list of clients. And yeah. people were like, it's such a smart technique. I was like, this is not a technique. I'm like, I don't want to put my name on something if right. I don't believe in it. And we were really lucky. Covet was really about founder-led brands. And so yeah. it was also as much about the product as it was about the founders. Like, are they people I wanted to spend time with? Were they people who I really, really respected? Because mm -hmm. oftentimes you don't have a match in those things. You have like such a cool product, but the person can be like a raging asshole or the yeah. opposite. You fall yes. in love with the founder and they're just so lost. So we tried, we took those on much more so than the raging assholes and try to help them. I like that. I actually really like that approach. And I'm going to skip around a little bit because I wanted to ask you about your latest venture, but I we have to, we actually, we have to go back first. We have to go back yeah. to this, which is what, you have worked with so many founders. So give yeah. us a give us a sort of, I don't want to say a blueprint, but I'll say blueprint. Yeah. <laughs> give us like a what makes for a great founder. And and if you want to even give us specific examples, that's totally fine. Or you can just give us characteristics. Either way, tell us. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. As I grew the agency, I tried to actually make like a checklist. And it was like, these are the type of brands we work with. These are the type of founders we work with. And there was always exceptions to the role. But like, Ultimately, I really love working with first time founders because mm. they have a little more, um, they haven't like seen as much as like the hardships that come with entrepreneurship. And so there's this like unbridled enthusiasm, like I can change yeah. the world, I will change the world. And it's like, you don't know what you don't know. And I think even for me, when starting my company, I feel so thankful that I wasn't um, attuned to how tough it would be because I say mm. all the time, if I knew, I, I would like to say I would have done it, but ultimately I don't know if I would have done it. And it's kind of that same thing with first time founders. There's just this huge passion to change the world. And at Covet, we mm. work with disruptive brands which I think in 2023 has been like completely bastardized. Mm. Like what's disruptive oh. anymore? But it was really, it was really like people who wanted to change the world largely through food or beverages. That was, that's what mm. we were really focused on. And I had a client who had um, 
the, the Honest Kitchen, which is with the first human grade pet food brand. And they told me early on they had the van test, which is, can you ride around in a van with eight hours with a potential hire without going crazy? And if so, you'd want to work with them. So I had my own version of van test with clients, but we did a lot of getting to know each other before we took them on because in PR, your client is often a direct representation of you. And so yeah. to me, it was like, are they respectful? Will they respect my team? Are they bold? Um, could care less if they had an MBA. I didn't have an MBA. Could care less where they went to school. Yeah. It was really like, what is what is their character? And then is this a product I would use and love? That's such a good answer. I mean, uh, that's such a good answer. That's such a good answer on so many levels. But I, I have to ask you something else as a sort of adjacency and not to get us too caught up in some of the semantics, but this podcast loves a good semantic sometimes. So, sure. so you'll indulge me for a second. But yeah. what... When so my first job out of college was in beauty PR and I lasted a year. <laughs> I didn't know that. I know it really is. It's such a crazy thing because I often like I I honestly shunned it from my brain. <laughs> I get it, especially when you're like the account coordinator and you're making eighteen thousand a year and I you're literally in the closet. <laughs> I lived at home. First of all, at first I thought like that that is the delusion that you trick yourself. At. Like yeah. at first I was like, oh my god, I have a salary. This is so cool. And then I realized that you live at home yeah. and your mom is still making your meals. <laughs> Yeah. And then after taxes, it's like, yeah, you have nothing. Like you actually have nothing. Um, but the, but the thing that always used to strike me about it, and granted, even at the time, like this was 2008. So we were diving into the recession. It's like going head first, like into economic downturn. And at the time, even then, and we had some amazing clients there, like some, some big household names. And then some of these more niche, like medical grade Mm -hmm. skincare, like there was some great Mm -hmm. stuff. But I still always wondered about the overhead, right? Because you have machines. You like everyone gets a computer. Everyone has the laptop. Everyone's machines, got the cell phone. Right. Machines. You get the Xerox machine. Have you heard of it? <laughs> we did when I first started PR. We were faxing, which, which so there is a, there was a machine. Hundred percent. I honestly think even at Hearst, we still had fact. We were still using fax machines yeah. occasionally for the occasional yeah. one-off. Um, but I always wondered about this because even though the salaries were low, I it seemed almost understandable because you're getting, you would you have like, let's say a prorated rate for clients, like mm-hmm. a different rate for different clients? Would it be a retainer based on how much they were looking for from you? Was it, so it was based on that. Okay. I would say one, you know, like real talk, it's a little um, arbitrary. Yeah. What would happen is we always worked on a retainer basis. And if you kind of think about that as a set of hours the client gets, and we never really like ran the clock and like you're over hours, but it just gave us kind of a a framework to work within. And then that retainer was based on a scope and the scope was based on the expected deliverables. So if it was when we took Beyond Meat through their IPO, Mm. I mean, it was, there was not enough hours in the day to work on that business. So they had a much higher retainer than a pre-revenue early stage brand that was launching D2C. And so we, we really try to pair like a fee based on what we think we were going to be using in terms of like human capital. And that is the thing about a service-based agency is there is there is there may be machines but outside of machines there is nothing there is nothing um too proprietary about what we do we didn't have tech we didn't have you know some crazy overhead it was really people and so the hardest thing about running an service-based agency is that so if you leave if you get a, a huge client and don't have the right people like you're always trying to play this like balance game between staffing properly and not having burnout by not having too much overhead if you don't have the clients and so it was never a perfect science i mean get yourself yeah. a great cfo or controller who can help yeah. because it's a it's a skill set that i do not have but really um it's people in service yes. what is something that 
that you looked for then that you still look for now when you're hiring? You know, to me, the biggest thing I always looked for was just this like, and it sounds so cheesy, but it was like this tenacity, this grit, this je ne sais quoi of like rolling your sleeves up. PR is not, to our earlier point, it is not this like very, it is a hard job. You are are a yes woman. (laughs) You are constantly online. You are someone, it is what I always would tell my team, like someone is giving you their baby, their brand. And they're saying, we trust you enough to like share it to the masses. And by the way, like don't F up because like you, you are sharing it to the masses. And so for me, it was a good communicator. It was someone who had good social EQ too, because I think so much of this job is about like delivery and communications. And, you know, you would oftentimes pitch a story and the the time said we were going to run it and they ran it. And it oftentimes did not say exactly what client wanted to say, which is the difference of advertising and PR. But it takes us, it just takes, I think, a really, um, a really socially competent, hardworking, good communicator and all mm-hmm. the other things can kind of be learned. And what I, I learned the hard way is if you don't have those three things, you can have someone amazing, but you can't teach some of those. So true. They're the only things that you really can't teach, but no. then once you see them, you're like, yeah, no, I know that this is right. Yeah. A a thousand percent. And I think, too, in all industries, there's evolution and innovation, but specifically in PR with when I started my agency in 2014, um, like Instagram was just becoming popular Mm -hmm. was where it was at. And there was I don't think Snap was around, certainly not TikTok. And we didn't have affiliate marketing. And when you look at the the changing landscape over the last 10 years, like you need to be like a voracious consumer of trends, not just oh food trends or beauty trends, but like what's happening and what's resonating. One day it's Discord, the next day it's Geneva, you know, one day, so it's like what Slack groups you need to be in with editors, like what you just have to be kind of always on the lookout for like, where should you be? Because you need to be there. So your clients know you're there and you can be there first yeah. with your clients. So interesting. All right. So on this note, let's talk about what's changed. So you oh started in 2014. It hasn't changed. I right. honestly feel- <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think what hasn't changed yeah. is you need relationships because yeah. relationships matter to your earlier point. You answered my emails. You saw my name because you trusted yeah. that I wasn't going to waste your time. That's still true. I think you still need to have a disruptive brand because in this day and age, there's so much saturation in wellness and like mm-hmm. there's a zillion fill in the blanks. And so you still have to have a brand. And I would say arguably now more than ever, you have to have a brand that really says something and it's yeah. not just giving you something. And when you look at like performance marketing and customer acquisition costs, you can't buy customers like you used to. It's no. gonna, so you need to stand for something. And right. that's largely why I'm doing what I'm doing now in this phase, because if you don't have that like really critical foundational brand work done in the beginning, it's mm-hmm. really hard to survive. It, look what's happening in the economy. Look, look at what's happening with it's hard to fundraise mm-hmm. right now. And so to me, what's remained true is you have to have a good brand. You have to have a brand story. Um, and, and you have to be able to pivot so, so quickly and you have to yeah. have relationships. I think those relationships are so critical to everything. And it really, it, I mean, to me, that is ultimately like what has always set you apart. But what I, but your eye for looking at trends and where things are headed, even if it's not, even if like you, like you said, like it's not necessarily what you're giving or, or the, the tangible product or the consumable product. It's about what you stand for. I want you to say more on that. I like what else what are some of the ways that you've seen this come up and like what are some good examples of it today? Yeah, I I one that I remember you and I worked on a lot, but yeah. this was back right when the agency started was this brand Epic Bar, right? Which yes. was like 
which you're like, so oh my a good God. example. Well, it's like bison in a bar. Right. Like everyone's eating like power bars and like Luna yeah. bars. And then these two amazing founders from Austin, I met them, they were just getting started. And they're like, you want, they're like, if there's something chewy, don't worry, that's a tendon. I'm like, what? <laughs> I was like, I just have more granola. What do you mean it's a tendon? And so they were, you know, at the, at the forefront of before keto became huge, yeah. before convenient snacking became huge. And Katie and Taylor were the founders and Katie was a vegan when she founded it because mm. she was told she was having a lot of health issues and she was this high endurance athlete and she thought veganism was the right way. And she, someone gave her advice, like eat some animal protein and she ate it and she had this like whole, this amazing 180 change. And so to me, it was a really powerful founder story and it was also something just weird enough. Yeah. It wasn't so weird. Like I thought I never represented a cricket yeah, cricket oh, like, that's a little weird you a know, great that's, story for you on that yeah, like, yeah that's a little but i was like people eat meat people eat bison yeah. so to me it signaled there was product market fit because yes. there was some format of consumption this was just a new format it showed me founders that were incredibly hardworking and tenacious they were married too but they had an amazing dynamic so for me they they checked a lot of boxes and back then i didn't even know what boxes need to be checked and it was kind of a feeling and to this day I'm working with this brand right now called Mazaw, and it's these two sisters out of Minneapolis, and it's this incredible chutney brand. And the second mm. I met them, it was like there's just this feeling, and the product is a bomb. Um, but I'm, I'm like a little hearing Another yeah. brand with Coyotas. It's another husband and wife founder, and they're really trying to reimagine the tortilla, and it's four ingredients, mm -hmm. and it's cost of a flour, and it's organic, and it tastes just as good as a flour tortilla. So you still pair like the how good the product tastes and the founders, but it's still that kind of that, that genesis yeah. ball box, which you don't really know, but needs to get right. checked. Tell me your cricket story. Oh my God. No, but it's so, wait, <laughs> first of all, before I even tell you this, who was, who, where, who acquired Epic? Was it Pepsi? General Mills. General Mills. Really yeah. So amazing. I mean, what a story. Yeah. And they were so ahead of their time, but, but in the best way, you're so right. Like the product market fit was exactly there at the exact right time. And then there they went, General Mills. Oh, look, Amazing. You, see Tom's, you see all these other brands that have like reformatted jerky or reformatted protein bars. And so that's that's super exciting to me. I think yeah. when you feel like, I to this day, I'm like, what has not yet been invented? Like it almost feels impossible when you go to Whole Foods or Airmont or whatever. <laughs> so when you actually talk to someone and they're like, we found something and it's not just so weird for the sake of being weird, but like actually has product market fit, that's when I get super excited. It, that's such a good point. And it's such a good point. Actually, you're, it's a perfect example and it's a perfect through line of chutney also, right? Because something that feels disruptive is something that is adjacent or within a category that exists, but maybe takes it to a different level or adds in surprising flavors or has something creative about the ingredient sourcing. Like it doesn't all have to be disruptive in like what hasn't been invented kind of way. You know what I mean? Like Mazaw, for an example, they're really trying to like be a pioneer of the refrigerate, refrigerated condiments. And if you think about it, like condiments, you go to the store and it's like your Newman's dressing has been sitting there yeah. for three years. Why can't it sit there for three years? So again, <laughs> I think I also look at like what 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 intersecting trends are they at? So like yeah. we see this huge explosion right now of globally inspired flavors. Yeah. The Om Soms, the Fly by Jings, the Bachin. So there's, again, there's, there's um, signals that the market right. is ready. And so that's another thing I look for. Like what are early indicators? Yeah. So interesting. So interesting. So, so my cricket story, my cricket protein story, just to, <laughs> just to add a little color, a little insult to injury here. I mean, not even, it, it was, honestly was mildly humiliating. However, it had a happy ending, which okay. is that I made it through the interview. Do you remember Wall Street Journal had a live stream that they would do? I think it was a daily live stream 
somehow I wound up on the show Talking Food Trends for, I want to say it was 2015 or 2016. It was something like it was years ago. And they were really into this concept. They were like, cricket, you know, it was like still so early. And they're like, cricket protein. So like I had these cricket protein bars. I can't remember. I think it's Exo. Yeah. XO. Yeah, I remember. And the and the peanut butter, I was like, I'm saying to myself, like I'm hyping myself up because I knew that they were going to want to do a little taste testing. Yes, <laughs> and course. I'm like, you got this, Jackie. Like <laughs> my inner monologue is like, we've got this. Like You can do it. I took one bite and at first you're like peanut butter, you know, like it's a hit of peanut butter. And you're like, first of all, why would you ruin such a beautiful protein such as the peanut protein? It's a beautiful, pro like we don't have to add more protein to this. We're good. Like this was good. And then the aftertaste hits and I was like, I'm sitting there and I'm talking and chewing and trying it. And I was like, am I going to get this down? Like I literally, like it went through my brain. Like I'm, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I can do it. Anyway, it was totally fine. On air was totally fine. After I was literally, I like had to go home from work. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh! And and it, and I have a feeling too. There's like there's physiological, then there's psychological, yeah. right? A thousand percent. I don't think anything was wrong per se, right. or that it right. was like I couldn't tolerate it. I think it was just it was there. It was this metallic aftertaste yeah. that just kept coming to me, and it didn't matter what I ate or how many times I brushed my teeth. It was <laughs> something <laughs> just haunting me. In the magic, in the kingdom of land, and like exactly there, yeah, and yeah. I'm like, yeah, like crickets, a beautiful idea. But you know what else is a beautiful idea for sustainability? Peanuts and yeah. beans, like oh, we're great. good. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I totally agree with you. There are many instances because one of our we had a lot of prerequisites, like prerequisites for taking on a brand, and like they would send it to our office first. I can't tell you how many weird things we tried to taste test in our conference room, and it was it was hard. Mm -hmm. There's there's that perfect like that that like bullseye of being a little ahead of trends but not so yes. ahead of trends that you're like 70 years ahead of trends yes so it definitely is a balance there's this other guy that i literally my husband and i had on shark tank the other day yeah and he was on shark tank and he's a wonderful guy and i i actually feel like you probably know him we can talk about this after the fact but just to get, just because i'm about to say something not so popular, yes. <laughs> which yeah. is that he founded a company that i want to say was called super greens or something like that i mean super Greens is such a common name but this was a chip Okay. It was a chip and it was a kale chip, but it was also a spinach chip. And it's also like okra. And there was like chard and there were lettuces in the chip. And honestly, it's the only other time that I can think of in the five years that I was at Good Housekeeping tasting food products basically for a living, like that I ever was like, can't do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that in a, in a smoothie, but there's much more palatable oh. as a drink than, yeah. Or even just as a sensible side dish. Like we don't, not everything has to be a chip because like when I first started back then, like right around the time that you were starting COVID almost, I feel like the chip thing was still being like, everything can be a chip, you know? Everything. Yeah. Right. And now I feel like it's gone to bites. I mean, who knows? There's been yes. so many evolutions of like formats, but yeah, I don't know if you saw that in the last few, in the last week or so, there's like this resurgence of like snacking. I didn't watch yes. the journal the story for it to the destroy. And it's <laughs> yeah. like, it's so funny when things that are like, because decide yeah. to become storyable. It's like but the whole idea that like taking some of the shame out of snacking and if it's a healthy enough snack, it can, it can be a meal and we don't have to have these three square meals, which again, yeah. feels a little of an antiquated piece, but, right. but there, it, that's also too, I think something with PR trends are always recycled. Like yes. it's very hard to actually find something that is totally never been said before, never been done before. So true. So true. So what, speaking of trends, yes. <laughs> I have to, because I have yes. to, because I have you and I can't not talk to you about trends, yeah. but let's, let's, 
let's talk about the evolution. First of all, the evolution of trends. Yeah. When you first started, what were some of the big ones and what, and let's sure. contrast that with today. Yeah. I think when I started, um, cold press juice. Mm. Oh my God. Dairy 2014. Yeah. And it was like, you know, at that point, I think it was just blueprint that was out. And so this yes. idea of like HPP cold press juices was huge. Um, kombuchas were really big. Um, yeah. What else? Um, I think cold brew coffee, like just the cold brew was, it was becoming a little right, more made cold brew. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, healthier kids snackings. Like mm. we were hired to kind of like bring some resurgence into the Annie's brand. And I think at that point, like some of these older legacy brands, why you see a lot of these legacy brands like Mills purchase an Epic is because that is like where the excitement is. And so I think when mm. I started Covet, it was really at that time where these small, cool indie brands were starting to get noticed and starting to get acquired. Um, whether it was Chameleon and Nestle. And so Daily Harvest was the first one of my first wow. clients. And so this idea of like bringing back, um, reclaiming like frozen foods and that frozen foods can mm -hmm. be healthy. And gosh, fast forward to today. I mean, I think things that I still have my eye on, um, I still am like, what are the last categories to be destigmatized? I, I like what's happening with cannabis. We yeah. launched a brand called Can, which now has become much more mainstream. So, yeah. you know, this idea of microdosing um, in foods and beverages, um, globally in flavored spires, like I spoke about. So whether yeah. it's like Mazaw, I work with a brand called Better Sour, which is these really fun, low sugar gummies um, founded by two Iranian best friends. And so yeah. kind of taking out some of the intimidation in the global food yeah. aisle, which historically you either went to like a special store for global right. food, or you had these like weird brands that like people like had not been modernized. And so mm -hmm. Americans were historically like really intimidated by trying. And I think we're seeing a huge shift to that, which I love. Um, gosh, I could go on and on. And I think, think too, plant-based when I started was huge, yeah. right? Like Boca Burgers, Impossible, Beyond. And now we're starting to see a little bit of um, the pendulum swifting the other way with a lot of people yeah. being like, I'm going to just go back to meat. Like I know where 100%. it's from. Wasn't in, grown in a lab, and so yeah. now we're seeing cell culture, cell cultivated meat. So this kind of 3.0 of it was like Boca yeah. Burger 1.0, Impossible 2.0, and now like cell cultivated meat 3.0. Um, I just still like eating a chicken breast and like a fillet. Well, I keep it yes. simple. Yeah, I think you do too. Yes, we keep it simple. We like to keep it simple over here. I mean. This is always the funny thing is that because as you're saying that and and even I, I mean I really just feel like I'm still haunted by cold brew like there are certain cold brew brands that if you I just it was the very first 8 a.m. Today Show segment that I ever did was on cold brew like cold brew as a trend it was 2015 no it was 2016 so it was like a little like it yeah. was today was very much in the GH zone of. We like things when we can hit it in the middle of a trend. We don't want to be the first, but we don't want to be at the end, right? Like it's that sort of thing. And I, I like, as you're saying it, I'm like $12.99 for a pack of, for a six pack. Like it's, it's, it's like, it's like Pavlov's dog effect. It just like trigger remember. I'm working now with a brand called Explore Cold Brew, but what's interesting about that. So when you think about to go back, like, okay, so cold brew is hot. Like how do you keep a brand hot after 10 right. million other trends? And so they have different levels. You can caffeinate differently in this idea. So that, cool. Like, yeah, so I think I think going back to what we said earlier, like there can be innovation within an existing category. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a whole new category. It's just like what what is the consumer demand, and then how can you create that? Right. I mean, plant based speaks exactly to that, right? Because I, even I would argue, as a dietitian, I would even argue that plant based can still mean that you eat meat, but you just yeah. have a more plant focused pattern of eating, right? So totally. it's like like some of these phrases or the things that have become so buzzy, it's like the evolution of them is really interesting. I also think the kombucha as a trend is has always fascinated me because 
I, I mean, I remember writing about it. I remember talking about it. I remember mm-hmm. thinking, I remember drinking it occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it always was there. And it, I remember when Pepsi bought Kavita. Do you yeah. remember that? Like it yeah. was. Was that your client? Was Kavita your client? No, Kavita okay. wasn't. We had Suja for so long, and every two I'm, days they were launching something new. So they right. kind of went out from taking on competitors. <laughs> right. I just, but the funny thing about Kavita was that their angle was like, I, I want to say that the packaging still doesn't say um, kombucha on it because of the way that it's made. It's like a sparkling probiotic yeah. beverage or something like that, right? I, I agree. Kombucha is a very um, interesting category. Yeah. And I think now what we're seeing with hard kombuchas is like, for yeah. example, it's the iteration of like your GTs or Kavitas. Right. And now you go to like a BevMo and there's like 10 billion hard kombuchas and it's really hard for the consumer to understand the differences. And I'm like, how did you guys get to market? Because you... Because kombucha could barely get to market. Do you know, or like it would go to market, but then what was the actual pull through? Do you know what? Like I never, it was always on the shelves. It's, and if it's no. on the shelves in New York, you know that like it's not moving, right? I always say that. I'm like, go to Venice or Williamsburg right. and see what's happening. And oftentimes like it's really hard. And something that I think we try to do when we did well at Covet is like, for a brand to make it, for a brand to, and making it, let's mm. say it's either acquisition or just like really good sustainable growth. Like you have to like penetrate middle America. You can't yes. just be like a coastal brand. Right. And so what we did at Covet a lot was like, we take, we took the cool kids and then we try to help them figure out like, how can we democratize this a little bit? Mm. So it's, it, so one day a Walmart could have it because ultimately like that's where you're going to yes. get those big excess. Right. Really so interesting. What, what would you say are some things that a Walmart, let's say, would be looking for as opposed to an Airwatt? <laughs> I mean, just, yeah. I mean, I know that we get, like, this is something that it feels so, like, second nature, I'm sure, to you and to me, but I would love for us to lay that out a little bit. I, mean, I think first and foremost, it's it's accessibility and accessibility yeah. through price. And so, yes. you know, when you go to Airwatt and you're getting a $14.99 <laughs> beverage, that's never going to scale down the way you need to for a Walmart. And so, like... <laughs> First and foremost, I think it's just like, is it, is it price? So the average consumer, and I think I read somewhere, like, I still think that, you know, the average household income is still well below six figures. And so you, you could not sustain those Air One prices at Walmart. Yeah, so your I think salary going to Air One. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think it's that. I think it's also like palatability. Yeah. And so I think the average consumer is probably a little less, um, like uh, they're a little more risk adverse. So like they're probably not going to be eating the cricket flour. They're probably not going to (laughs) be eating these like really, really crazy wild flavors. And so I think it's it's making things a little more mainstream, both in taste and I think mainstream in cost. Mm -hmm. And ultimately like Suja is an example, they launched with a 9.99 juice, but they were able to get down to a 2.99 and they were able to do that through smaller from 16 ounce to 12 ounce. And then also from not using as many ingredients and also using ingredients that were a little more recognizable to the average consumer. Mm -hmm. And so, you have that brand equity it's it, that's why you start like cool and then you go broad versus starting broad and going cool it's a little harder to reverse engineer it oh it's so true and i see i mean perfect example of this perfect example of this is actually general mills when they decided to make that huge announcement in 2015 that was like we're removing artificial ingredients and I, re- I mean, I just remember the news cycle then, which was so still a little bit more monoculture than it is now, which is yeah. like people are just hearing things from all different sources. But I just remember like here, it was like on every channel at every hour was like someone talking about General Mills removing artificial ingredients. People, this doesn't matter. I mean, we all know listeners of this podcast, I'm sure know that already. <laughs> but yeah. like this means nothing because 
it might mean something as a packaging claim so that you know that your competitors in the space Mm -hmm. who are using real estate to say no artificial ingredients and you want to compete with them. I get it. But it's not announcement worthy because you, you like, because people don't know that you can still have MSG. Right. Actually, you can't have MSG in a product, but but whatever. I mean, this is getting a sidetrack, but the idea. Yeah, it's the same thing when you see like gluten-free on water. Right. You know, right. Like, or wine. Like, I see it on wine yeah. all the time. Now I'm like, get that thing off there. I mean, some of these labelings are so absolutely preposterous. Yeah. We are working right now with um, a very well-known heritage snack brand. Mm. And they have plant-based on their box and it's like oh God, no. we don't like we don't need to have plant-based on crack you know what i mean and it's like right. what are the, the cracker right Where's what are the meat <laughs> right right what are the claims that matter and then i think we talk so much about like this greenwashing in this industry whether yes. it's like sustainable claims whether whatever it is it's like and that's why i do think the pendulum is shifting and i'm sure you you know this and i'm glad to see yeah. it just kind of going back to the basics a little bit yeah like we have totally overcomplicated our food system marketing is totally overcomplicated consumer education like it, it's a hard time to be a consumer and to totally. go and know and like people so often try to do the right thing and it's really hard i think now to actually know if you're doing the right thing. Okay. Two things I want to ask you about on this note. First, before I forget it. Yes. Before I forget it. Yes. (laughs) There was a time when packaging claims, uh, I, listen, when the FDA first made some of these guidelines, right? Like even in the eighties, there was a time when that mattered more because when you are looking for products and there's fewer products available and you want to know that this meets your specific needs, preferences, lifestyle, it, it makes complete sense. But Something that I've thought a lot about recently because of the FDA's latest commitment to have a label that signifies healthy on food labels Mm -hmm. that like the redefined term and now there's so Mm -hmm. much up in the air about what does it actually mean and can brands actually meet the criteria that the FDA has proposed and there's just a lot of controversy about it. And my, uh, I'm just going to use the words hot take on this. this. It's just who gives a flying fuck and not because not because I think that it couldn't be impactful at one point in time, but because I think content marketing itself has become the driver, right? Like, so that it it's less about the claims and more about the packaging. Let's just use my least favorite, but also great example of beautiful packaging, Olipop, like the way that they have sort of like brought what they want to signal to life, like mm-hmm. the fun, but also mm-hmm. signaling a little bit of that health halo that's going on there. Like I can see why it's an attractive brand. Mm-hmm. Like it, it makes, mm-hmm. like, I think the brand is strong, even if mm-hmm. I don't think the product is great. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's, a, it's just like an interesting place to be. And I wonder what you think about that, like the product marketing versus the actual content marketing around the product and how the storytelling happens. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes I lose sight that like my, it, I, this is all I do. And so I think yeah. it's pretty obvious, right. To everyone. Yeah. But like, I do think that there's value and it's like what we saw with the word natural seven, mm. eight years ago. Yeah. You know, people were really trying to do well by their family and buy things. And I do think there has to be some sort of shot collar on like on what these words mean. So I'm okay with that. But I think but more than that is like, how can people really understand a nutritional label? Like to me, it's always like right. it's added sugars is where I look to first. It's not right. calories, it's added sugars. Yeah. It's what are the first three ingredients. And so I do think labeling matters to an extent. But I think in this day in 2023, like a lot of the brands that are killing it are the ones that Olipops that have like insane marketing. Yeah. And right. it's this idea that you're selling a lifestyle and the brand is the afterthought. The product right. is the afterthought. Yes. So it's, yeah. it's like why we're seeing all these CPG brands launch merch. This didn't happen right. seven years ago. Now you see people walking on like Abbott Kenny with like, you know, a dough shirt. And it's like, right. that means something. And so I think really what we're seeing now is like, 
in the last five, 10 years, products have gone beyond product marketing and it's brand marketing and brand mm -hmm. selling a lifestyle. And I think they're also doing that to like help their PL because it's margins are tough. And so they're looking for different revenue streams. So I think it's I think it's complicated right now. But the short answer is like never have I seen so much content around brands as I do today, yeah. which is a good thing and a bad thing. It's exciting, mm -hmm. but I think it also can confuse people. Right. And I wonder about the extent to which the oversaturation is here, if not really here. <laughs> I mean, right. like, what else can come in? Sorry. Like what else can come? Yeah, like, no, exactly. Like how much more content marketing can, yeah. like when you, I, I mean, I always like what something that I feel like has come up more in 2023 and that I am personally so into both as a creator and as a consumer is the concept of de-influencing because I just think there's so many people out there that just need to be told, actually, you don't need that. You know, like yeah. that not even because, um, you know, not necessarily because of like overconsumption, but because mm -hmm. of being told so many times, like if you hear certain claims, even over to your point about healthy and plant-based and things like that, that if you hear certain things over and over again, you start to believe that they have more weight yeah. than they do. Right. And it, it's almost like at what point, like I, I saw this brand recently. I honestly feel like I saw it on TikTok. It was someone was talking about a beauty brand that where they had, I'm sure you are familiar with this. I feel like you would know, but I can't remember the name. But basically the brand, the design was like someone had scribbled on a napkin. Okay. <laughs> like that is what it looked like. And it was basically like, these are the ingredients that are in it. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And like, and mm -hmm. we're not selling you anything. It was, it was really this sort of like, let's strip yeah, away all the excess. Yeah. And I feel like, it like it's almost like a next phase of a trend, but it's also been here for a while. You know what I mean? Like it's like well, the next evolution. This like um this kind of pullback from like what brands have been using last year's like blanding is this phrase yes. where it's like these like you know very like muted colors, the yellows, the pinks, and yeah, there there always is there's always a shift. I think now there is a bit of a shift to simplicity, and yeah. whether that's because there's so much saturation or the consumer wants to know and. I think de-influencing has should have always been how it's been because if mm -hmm. I follow an influencer, I want to know that they're a real person and right. real persons have likes and dislikes yeah. and their likes are going to be that much more powerful if I know what their dislikes are. Like this is in rocket science. And I understand on their end, like this is their revenue stream, their creators, and I get the hesitation around brand bashing or whatnot. But like ultimately, I think the influencers or creators that have sustained the changing algorithms mm -hmm. and everything that's happened is because they just like keep it real. Like they yeah. just... I mean, it, again, not rocket science. It's like, right. I just tell you what's up. Which brands that, and this can be totally off the cuff, but are, yeah. is there some, are there characteristics of a brand that you think, okay, this is what would it, what it would take to be a brand that's killing it right now. And by contrast, what would it take to be a brand that you're like, please go away? <laughs> I think does such a great job as both a creator and a brand is um, Lauren Everett's is getting confidential. Yeah. And why, I mean, you may have, a, I, her name may not suit with this audience, but she started it when she was in college. Yeah. And I just think because she shows behind the scenes, she shows mm -hmm. arguably very unflattering pictures. Completely. Like, totally agree with you. Some plants removed. And she, yeah. she talked about it. And I think it's this idea of like pulling back the curtain yeah. and people are so, and again, I don't think I'm saying anything novel here, but people are so sick of like this fictitious, like everything is perfect, blah, 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 yeah. blah. Like I don't care about outfits of the day. I want to know, like, I want to know the kind of the grimy stuff. And so I think founders that are showing vulnerability, I think mm -hmm. founders that are like not using filters. I just think that there's something that is really um, pleasing and like palatable about that. So true. So the inverse of that would just be this idea of like this perfect 
life and like starting yeah. a brand is hard. And when I, when founders take to TikTok and like talk about it, I, I love that. It makes me want to support them more than them going on an influencer trip to like Morocco. You know what I mean? It's like, you want to fight for the people who feel like they're humans. Can we just, Sarah, can you just tell us about Alex Earl for a second? Because I feel like our listeners probably know her a little bit. I mean, you, you like, I just want to talk about the Tarte Dubai trip for a second because I like, yeah. I'm just like, first of all, what kind of budget is happening here? <laughs> I do not know. And you know, there's this saying that all PR is good PR, but I would say this is an example where right. it's, it's challenging, like, and whether they were good intent, like whatever it is, I don't, I don't know anyone at the brand. I don't I don't know yeah. anyone that went on the trip, but it's a really good reminder that like the world is watching 24 yeah. seven. And I feel like you, that about Bud Light. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you, it's like as much as people cheer for people, people also will tear you down so quickly. And we are in such a PC culture. And arguably, I think that's really good for 99% of the time. But like, there's very little room these days for brands to have a misstep. And when you think about when I started PR in 2006, Mm. there was no Twitter. There was no, I mean, I, there was no Instagram. So like, there was such a separation between a brand, a brand founder and the end consumer that yeah. so much shit could go down and no one would know. Right. Everyone had a publicist and that's the only way you'd connect. And now it's like, I had many clients where I'd be like, no, don't say that. No, don't say that. They didn't care. So it's like, yeah. in a way it's nice because it's, it's a little more authentic, but another way, like all your shit is out all the time. Right. It really is amazing too. I mean, and something that, I, and listeners will forgive me for this because I'm just going to reference, harken back to last, or, or maybe this will be two weeks ago when this comes out, but the last episode that I recorded was kind of looking at the Bud Light controversy mm-hmm. from a food and beverage marketing perspective mm-hmm. only, because I was only hearing the political controversy and I felt like, mm-hmm. hello people, like this was the better for you brand when it first came out. Like we should be looking at this from that angle also. And what shocked me about it is that it almost feels like the reluctance to dig into the old school. This is a lower calorie beer people. Like ultimately at the end of the day, it's still a lower calorie beer. So if you're not going to talk about calories, what else are you going to talk about? And we can't be so afraid to talk about calories all the time. Sometimes it's okay. You know, I think I I do have a lot of empathy for brands. I remember during 2020 when Black Lives Matters happened and there was so much like social upheaval brands now do have a platform and people want to hear from them, even if it's something they're not really like educated on speaking about or should be speaking on. Like there's just this expectation for consumers and it is hard sometimes to know what to say, what not to say, how much to say, when to say it. It's like, I remember the hashtag like blackout or there was something. And then a month later, like it was bad to do that, but like all the brands were doing that. And so I do think, and as a publicist, as someone who, who, you know, I tell people I'm like a lawyer, a therapist, right? Like you're you're always trying to counsel people on the right thing, but sometimes you don't know. But I do think there are some like pretty one-on-one when it comes to like what you should and shouldn't right. say because you'll be found out as as yeah. we're saying so interesting yeah i mean it's just i think people are beyond the idea of just getting tissue paper in the mail with no present inside you know what I like and i feel like that is what people can see through so if you're gonna say something or you are gonna speak to a specific issue finding your specific angle or your voice in that is so critical and you don't have to rush to go to market with any like especially if you're a huge consumer brand, right? Like there are others that where you can say, listen, fail fast. A hundred, a hundred percent. And the end, the thing I would just add to that is like, everything lives on the internet. So if right. you're going to say something, right. like I've had clients who have the best intention and like people would unearth 
like shit from like 15, 20 years ago. And so it's like things, it's hard, it's hard now to let things like, it's, I always feel like it's really hard now to be a public figure because you yeah. just can't mess up anymore. And even if you mess up 20 years ago and you're not that person anymore, people will just like troll you on that. So totally. there, it is, it is challenging, I think in this day and age to be, have a, have a platform which people come to and you got to be very yeah. careful sometimes. It's so interesting. It's such a good point that you say that because I, you know, like I don't want it to be like that. I'm sure you feel like that too, right? Like you don't want it to be that people can't make mistakes. Like I want to know. And, and I will say that I think you're so spot on with that because it's also like the people that we respect the most are the people that make mistakes and then apologize for them. Totally. But there's this like stigma or, or especially for corporations and having worked at a large corporation, I used to see this all the time is that mistakes were being made all the time and no one would just say, I'm really sorry. That was, I messed that up. Like instead it was, what, right. what's the messaging? How are we going to spin this? Or like, how are we going to go out there with this? What if we just said, whoops, that was a mistake. Ability <laughs> in this day and age is super refreshing. And it's, and it's, and I get it from like a legal standpoint because it's like every word, but like there is something just like beautiful and authentic about just being like, hey, we messed up. It's right. really hard. We're sorry. That is the, the main difference, I think, between being a, a corporation or someone who is speaking for a corporation versus being an individual creator or a brand, oh, right? Like, cause you totally. get to say that to your followers. I remember when we, when we had clients like, um, Kellogg's or General Mills's clients, even negotiating like our contracts, you're like signing your life away. Right. It would be like these, you know, 200 MSA agreements. And it's just like, and I get it. There's a lot to lose and some are publicly traded, but yeah, it's, there's a lot more ability to be nimble the smaller right. you are for sure. I mean, I feel like that is uh, that you heard it from Sarah first. Okay. All right. So tell us, Sarah, you've got to tell us about Goldilocks because we got to, mm. got to get into it and we have yeah, to, well, I'm so excited it's for funny. you. Goldilocks is, has been in existence in for the last seven months. I just, that it's like the irony of like building other people's brands and not having time to build my own brand. Yeah. But Goldilocks um, is a company I started with Heather McNeil and Heather McNeil was the CMO at Suja where I did their PR and Amazing. brilliant comes from a much more kind of traditional marketing background. She, you know, it's a biz school. She worked her way up through the ranks at Pepsi, fell in love mm -hmm. with smaller brands, better for you brands. And when I sold my company in 2020, um, I then worked for the company that bought Covet and then we sold again last year. And so when I left the company mm -hmm. world and Heather left the world of like big brands and <clears throat> um, on the sweet suite, we got together and we were basically like similar to our earlier conversation, like what services are left to provide consumer brands that does not exist? Like right. it's really hard to think about it. And Ultimately, ultimately, what we came to and me through the lens of running an agency and her through the lens of being a CEO, COO, was that if you don't have a true brand and a North Star and that's something you can defend and you don't have a moat and you don't really mm -hmm. understand what you're uniquely delivering that the consumer wants that no one else can deliver on, it is really hard to grow as a brand and ultimately reach profitability, which is what brands yeah. want to do. And so often brands skip that stage because it's, it's, they don't have the capacity, they don't have the resources. And so what we're trying to do at Goldilocks is give this skill set that has typically been reserved for $100 million plus companies and work with small and emerging brands. And so, so we work with brands pre-revenue to about 20 million in revenue. And we really like to say we're this like commercial demand architect. So we come in and we help discover that like magical connection between a brand and a consumer. And then we bring that to life. So how do we say that? What do we say? Um, it's not PR. Um, it's kind of PR Jason, and we help yeah. find the right people on to then execute the strategy. So it's brand positioning, it's go-to-market strategy, it's marketing plans, and then we kind of hire out, and then we advise mm -hmm. throughout. So 
we've been rocking and rolling for about six months and we're having so much fun and we are mm-hmm. so picky about who we work with because lucky enough we can at the stage in our career um we work with you know, a lot of female led brands, a lot of minority led brands, and um, we're having a blast doing it. It's so amazing and such a perfect natural evolution for you after being, after spending, did you say 20 years? I mean, that's yeah. just unfathomable to me. Yeah. yeah 20 yeah, I mean, years. My first job out of college in the early 2000s were at MTV and E News. So right. in, in the media space, the 20, 20 plus years in, in kind of the space as a whole. And Ultimately, um, we to our earlier point, you can't buy customers now. So if you don't stand yeah. for something, you're not going to make it. And this work is so important. And so we like to say we're like an advisor who actually does work and not just gives advice. We kind of have yeah. the prowess and the network and the strategy of an agency. And then we have the experience of a C-suite. And so it's kind of the best of both worlds. We have no employees, which is- wow. It's the best I love, ever. <laughs> I love my team. But, but having a team is super hard. You spend time working on the business, not in the business. So it's just Heather and I. Um, and we, you know, we work with a handful of clients at a time and we have good work-life balance. We both have kiddos. Mm-hmm. I have a three and a five-year-old. So mm-hmm. it does, it feels like the perfect natural evolution of what I've been doing. And yeah. I'm having so much fun and I'm learning. I'm doing things I haven't really done before. They were kind of like PR adjacent and it's great to be learning in your forties and to be like getting new skill sets. No, it's amazing. And also, you know, the funny thing about PR is that it does feel like, even for the short time that I was doing it, it really feels like it's an education, like a, almost like a brain dump of an education, right? Like it's like an all, like you're learning so many things all at once and you're a sponge, right? Like it it does feel like you can really, exactly, like it feels like you can actually use it now. Yeah. What matters? How do you say what matters? How do you say what matters on social versus in sell sheets versus to brokers, to buyers? And um, yeah, I think we've hit a sweet spot and we've we've had a waiting list out the door since we haven't and we haven't even launched. So it's all been word of mouth, which has been great. And so it allows us to to work with just really cool brands. So it's an exciting time for sure. Um, And it keeps me when I left the agency world, I was like, what am I going to do? Because like one, I had a non-compete, so I couldn't do PR, but I was ready to do something else. Yeah. Um, and I had a little like soul searching. It's really weird to be doing the same thing for 20 years and to know you're good at it and for people to know you're good at it. And then be like, what can I do? Right. And, and, God, it's, and like you've evolved. <laughs> evolved, like think about it. Like you've done so many things and it, it's really scary. And even if you had a success and sold a company, it doesn't take mm-hmm. out the imposter syndrome for when you're starting again. And so... It's good. It's humbling for sure. Thank you for saying that. I feel like more people need to hear that. It's like, oh, it's almost like the imposter syndrome doesn't always go away, people. Oh. Like you can have it at any and all career it stage. It never goes away. And I honestly, like, I think having a little imposter syndrome keeps me humble and on my okay. toes. But there's a point where it's like, you should not have it, right? Like what a man right. have that? Like, but it, but it definitely, I mean, I think almost every successful person I know has has spoken openly about it. And I think we're, I yeah. hope that there's starting to be a little destigmatization of that. Okay. One more brand specific yes. question for you before yes. we wrap up is that, and I've been thinking about this a lot because I think about this in terms of some of, of bigger corporations or um, corporations that have some of these like incubator brand, yeah. um, you know, kind of spinoffs to, to their larger organization. Let's say you are like a consumer product that is sold nationally, that mm-hmm. has been on shelves for 20 plus years, and you have generally decent revenue, but you mm-hmm. can, you have eyes, you work on the brand team, you also have eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you know that like market share, there's market share is 
being eaten into at any and all stage. And yes, it's consistent. And you know that you have the infrastructure and you have distribution and you have like certain things that are going. But but outside of some of the things that you mentioned, because mm-hmm. those are all such amazing points, like what would you say to someone that is at a larger corporation that is a brand marketer? What would you want them to know right now about the current moment? I mean, I think right now something that, again, is not new, but I'm just seeing it executed really well is partnerships. And mm-hmm. I think like uh, I think it was Velveeta that just partnered yeah. with Compartes, which is this beautiful chocolate brand. Like yeah. no one wants cheesy Brilliant. chocolate, but but they're able to grab each other's market share and they're able to bring some of that edge. And so like right now, if we think about snacks like Moonshot or Simple Mills, these are like yeah. the darlings of snack brands and you have these like really larger legacy brands. And so it's like, look at what these brands are doing. How are they talking? Who are they partnering with? What events are they doing? What social initiatives are they doing? Um, and I think it's just getting that market share, whether it's the Gen Z consumer, but it's popping up in unexpected places, whether it's through limited edition um, ideas. There's also, I think a lot of brands are doing these like product drops really well. So like mm. this, this FOMO. And so it's also a great way to like R&D some new flavors. So I think it to me, like I think if I were to give one piece of advice that I think is pretty like, standard across the board. I think it's it's finding that partnership to get to that new consumer. You are a genius. I just want to say, I just love you. You are a genius. This was amazing. And also, Velveeta, you are amazing. Because that is such a good reminder of the fact that they really, like, they know what they're doing. Right? When they did that partnership with Van Leeuwen, I was like, you guys yeah. know. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was Kraft. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry, Velveeta. Yeah. Sorry. However, job of like taking these like really like stodgy household legacy brands and like making them cool. And um, yeah, so I don't think that's going away. But listen, the pleasure is all mine. You will forever be one of my most favorite editors I met back in the day. And it's been fun to have our friendship evolve into these new phases of life. Um, And it was a pleasure to be a guest. All right. I have to ask you our final question of the of the podcast. This is the next generation. And this is just first thing that comes into your mind. The most annoying grading thing in wellness that you see right now. I would say any like vaginal crystal. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. There's just some, I could drop the microphone. I would do that right now. Some things that don't need to be crystallized or, (laughs) or (laughs) inserted. Um, that's like, yeah, I think like 98% of, of the goop stuff has gone a little too far. Listen, it's great for, it's great for clickbait and I'm all about clickbait as a publicist, but there's just some things that should be kept in the geo section of a gemology store. (laughs) Keep it in star magic. I could not agree more. Where can our listeners find you and learn more about Goldilocks and learn more about you? So, um, it's goldilocks.com as our, as our landing page. Again, have not had time to do anything. Um, I'm really active on LinkedIn. So Sarah Brooks on LinkedIn. Um, and those are probably the best places. We have to become an influencer, you know, probably not going to happen. Probably not going to happen in this stage of my life, (laughs) but follow me on, on the Sarah Brooks for lots of kid content. I love it. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Wellness. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Remember that advice provided on this podcast is based on my application of research and practice as a registered dietitian and should not replace medical advice provided by your physician. If you like what you're listening to, please follow the show, leave a five-star rating, and share something you love from today's episode by leaving a review. This podcast only grows with your support. So if you enjoyed this episode, share it far and wide. It may be the one thing someone needs to hear to start building that roadmap today to secure a healthier, happier future. That's it for now. So until next time, cheers.